0: Global stocks continue to uh, get pounded here. The U.S. stock market down again. I think it's the sixth day uh, in a row that we've been down. You know, yesterday was another big down day like the one that we had on Friday, which was, you know, we were down a little over 1,000 points. I think it was 800 and change or something yesterday. In fact, we had two back-to-back days where the market was down 3%. That is a rare occurrence uh, had we been down 3% again today, which we were not, uh, but that would have been the first time that that happened since the Great Depression to show you how rare uh, that type of move is. But we still got a down day today. The Dow was down about 123 points, so about a half a percent. You know, at one point this morning, the Dow was up better than 450 points, uh, but then we sold off and we were down as much as 200 near the lows. Uh, So we still had a negative close. Uh, I think the charts technically look very weak. All the indexes are down. You know, the NASDAQ composite, again, that was also down, and it's down about, or it was up slightly today, actually, but it's also down just under 8%, I think, over the last six days. The weakest index continues to be the Dow Transports. That was down another 220 points today. That brings the six-day decline in the transports to about 12 percent so that one is in a full-fledged uh, correction the way wall street defines it not that much far to go to be in a bear market i think technically the ugliest looking of the indexes might be the russell 2000 uh it was down about 1.2 percent today but that was the index that never was able to make a new high and and so it could be hit the hardest and again that is the index that is uh, most reflective of the domestic economy that's the one that everybody uh, would believe would be even stronger since the you know the conventional narrative is that the US domestic economy is booming and any problems are, are just going to be you know some contagion that you know we catch from abroad and so if it's just the foreign economies and the foreign markets that we have to worry about uh, the, the more removed you are from that the stronger you should be but that is not the case it's the domestic stocks that are even having a, a harder time you know gold continues to uh move up uh, a little bit of volatility because we're off the highs gold today closed up maybe about eight bucks or so around 16.40 we did get as high as about 16.90 i think on monday night before we had that late day Monday sell-off and we had some selling this morning at one point gold was down about 20 bucks but it managed to finish positive but over that six-day time period you still have about a two percent move up in the price of gold which is not bad especially considering how much stocks are down right because if you have the Nasdaq or the Dow down eight percent in terms of dollars but gold's up two percent that means in terms of gold Uh, Those indexes are down 10%. And I tell people that gold is like an alternative to a currency. It's liquidity. It's money. And if you want to keep powder dry because you think stocks are expensive and you want to buy them in the future when they're less expensive or when they're cheap, I recommend that people keep their dry powder in gold rather than the dollar or even other currencies and clearly if you wanted to put your dry powder to work now you would be able to take advantage of an even bigger decline if you're buying stocks by selling gold than if you're buying stocks by selling dollars so gold is living up to its reputation as a store of value as a safe haven Uh, money continues to flock into gold as a result of what's happening and of course there are other safe havens money is still going into treasuries now personally i don't believe treasuries are a safe haven the yields continue to hit all-time record lows i mean this is you know places where we've never traded uh, looking at the bonds today yields dropped again they were higher uh, earlier in the morning but they reversed like the stock market so the yield on the 10-year closed at 1.31, the yield on the 30-year, just below 1.8, at 1.796. So these are crazy yields, but they continue to move lower because people believe that the Fed is going to cut interest rates as a result of the declining market and also as a result of any economic slowdown that may result uh, from the coronavirus or anything else for that matter. So it is traders betting on rate cuts. That is the reason that they are flocking into treasuries. Now, that may be the same reason that they're flocking into gold. Rate cuts are much better for gold than they are for treasuries. But uh, people haven't gotten burned on that trade yet. So they keep on doing it. At some point, the people who are buying um, treasuries thinking they're doing something safe are going to lose a lot of money. And they're going to realize that they were jumping out of the frying pan into the fire and they should have been buying gold. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people, right or wrong, who view the treasuries as a safe haven and, and that's where the money is going. And you know, money has also moved a little bit into the Japanese yen or Swiss franc. I mean, those are other places that people go uh, when they wanna get away from risk and they wanna go to uh, risk adverse, uh, risk off type assets. But the interesting thing is, although it's not really interesting to me, it's something that I've been expecting. But it should be interesting to a lot of people. Is what's been happening to Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin has been marketed, heralded as a digital gold, right? That it's a safe haven like gold, that it's a store of value like gold. And you know, the reason that the digital gold narrative really you know took hold with Bitcoin is because the original narrative that it was a digital currency kind of fell apart, right? Because all of a sudden you had all these other cryptocurrencies, there's over 5,000 of them now. And many people admitted that, well, some of these other currencies are actually better at being a a, a currency than Bitcoin. They're faster, they're less expensive to use, and they would actually be uh, better to use in commerce uh, than Bitcoin, even though nobody is using those other currencies either, it's all just fantasy. Uh, But then, when that digital currency narrative kind of went by the wayside because it actually didn't pan out, uh, everybody started focusing on the digital gold angle. Well, you know, it's not gonna be used as a medium of exchange, but it's gonna be used as a store of value, just kind of like gold because, hey, nobody is out there buying goods and services with gold. People aren't using gold as money. They're just kind of storing it, and so people are going to do the same thing with Bitcoin. They're just going to store it, and so it doesn't, you know, have to have any real use like gold, uh, which was, of course, nonsense because even though people are storing gold, other people are using it, being used in jewelry and industry and all those different uh, aspects where gold is used. And of course, gold was used as a medium of exchange in the past and it could easily be used as a medium of exchange in the future, and it is currently being used as a reserve asset by central banks. Now, of course, Bitcoin is not being used by any central banks as a reserve asset. It has never been used as a medium of exchange in the past, and it really won't be used as it in the future. Now, yes, is it possible that two people can get together and exchange Bitcoin for something? Sure. But that's more like a barter transaction. I mean, that's just like giving somebody, you know, a chair uh, for a pig, right? You're just trading two things because it's, you, it's not easy to trade Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin is like a commodity in that respect or an asset, a digital asset. And so trading it for something else is more like barter uh, than making a monetary exchange. But the digital gold narrative was very strong. And in fact, even a week ago, uh, as bitcoin continued to rise and it was rising more than gold i was reading these articles that were really pounding the digital narrative digital gold narrative and basically saying that this validates it that bitcoin's year to date appreciation that exceeds gold's and the fact that bitcoin had been moving up uh, as more than gold as a result of the global tensions and and all the stock market Movements and the the nervousness about the coronavirus that in the first couple of days, uh, Bitcoin had appreciated more. The price had gone up more percentage-wise than gold, and so these articles were basically saying, "Aha! You know, Bitcoin has now proven itself. Uh, It has proven itself to be superior to gold, a superior store of value." a superior safe haven. And of course, I read that, I put out a tweet and I said, this is ridiculous. Bitcoin hasn't proven anything. It hasn't been around long enough to prove anything. It doesn't matter that it went up, right? That doesn't prove it's a safe haven. It doesn't prove it's a store of value. It doesn't prove anything. And now, if you look at what's happened over the last few days, the price of Bitcoin has collapsed. I mean, Bitcoin was about 10,000 a coin uh, when this coronavirus started or close to it. As I'm recording this, it's below 8,800. It's about 8,750. I think the low I saw earlier this morning was about 8,600, and you know maybe a little bit higher than that. But we're down. I don't know about 10 percent or so. I mean, Bitcoin is actually down more uh, than the Nasdaq and the uh, the Dow. It, you know, and if you look at that grayscale Bitcoin Trust, right? That's the the publicly traded GBTC. That is what. Uh, was using the drop gold campaign hey don't even have gold get rid of your gold sell your gold and buy the grayscale bitcoin trust over the last six days the grayscale bitcoin trust is down about 24 percent it's actually moved into a complete bear market in the span of six days and so basically this is destroying the safe haven narrative the you know this this is a store of value i mean how can bitcoin be a safe haven if during times where the markets are going down, Bitcoin goes down even more than risky assets, right? It did not go up like gold did or treasuries, which are perceived incorrectly, in my opinion, but still perceived as a safe haven. There was no safe haven money moving into Bitcoin. What was happening was people were taking risk money off the table. So basically... Bitcoin is not digital gold and never has been digital gold. It is digital risk, right? But if Bitcoin isn't digital gold, then what the hell is it? If it's not a safe haven and it's not a store of value, what is the purpose? Well, now they have reinvented it again. And what everybody is talking about now, because I've seen a couple of interviews. You you had a guy, Pomp, a nice guy, uh, was on a CNN And the reporter, very, very positive interview with him. I mean, eating up everything he says. Uh, You know, one of the things he was on there to do was to basically say, hey, don't listen to Warren Buffett. He doesn't know what he's talking about, right? Because Bitcoin is great and he's just too old and doesn't understand technology. And so we shouldn't pay any attention to what what Warren Buffett has to say. But the woman who was um, uh, interviewing him, and it was pretty obvious that she was quite taken with him. uh, Just look at her eyes. Uh, He is a nice looking guy. Uh, But in any event, uh, you know, she's fawning all over him, but she's pointing out, hey, wait a minute, you know, Bitcoin is down, right? I mean, it's not going up now. I mean, it's going down with the market. So how is that a safe haven? And then all of a sudden, you know, Pompliano basically just, well, you know, a lot of people are confusing safe havens for uh, non-correlated assets. You know, Bitcoin is a non-correlated asset. That's what he said, meaning, hey, don't confuse Bitcoin with a safe haven. It's not a safe haven. Well, the reason so many people are confusing it with a safe haven is because that's exactly what guys like Pomp have been telling people it was. In fact, I saw another guy. I don't even know who this guy's name was. He was on CNBC And, you know, they mentioned the digital gold and he said, well, you know, Bitcoin's never been digital gold or, you know, whoever said Bitcoin was digital gold. What do you mean? I'm like falling off my chair. Everybody said that. Everybody was saying it was digital gold. It was a store of value. Now, all of a sudden, when it's proving that that's not the case, now all of a sudden, well, it's a non-correlated asset. And that's the only thing I agree with because it's not currency. It's not a digital currency. It's not digital gold. But I do agree it is an asset, a digital asset, right? I mean, it has market value. It has no real intrinsic value. But if you have one, you can go sell it. Somebody will pay you uh, money for one. You can get $8,750 right now for a Bitcoin. So if you own one, it is an asset. It's not tangible. So it's a digital, uh, you know, cyber crypto asset. But I, I agree it's an asset. But I agree that it is not a safe haven. It is not digital gold. It's not a store of value. It is a highly speculative asset and the price could just swing wildly, you know, just depending on the, the supply and demand, uh, which the demand could go away, you know, anytime because the demand is all based on using Bitcoin as a speculative asset, uh, not for any other other purpose. But this guy and, and, and Pomp and several other people were saying that because Bitcoin is a non-correlated asset, that it's not correlated to any other asset, that, that gives it value. And of course, they're also saying it's not correlated to gold. Well, again, that proves it's not digital gold because if Bitcoin has no correlation to gold, then on what basis is it digital gold? Because if it was digital gold, it should be correlated to the real version if it's the digital version. But if it's not correlated at all to gold, well, then it's certainly not digital gold. But if it's simply just a non-correlated asset, I would argue that that offers no actual value, right? Because what they're saying is it doesn't matter what stocks do. It doesn't matter what bonds do. It doesn't matter what gold does. This Bitcoin is just going to go up or down just randomly. Well, then why own it? I mean, I understand if something is negatively correlated to something, then you would buy it to hedge whatever it's negatively correlated to. But if Bitcoin is just as likely to go down when the U.S. market is going down as up, then why even buy it? You're not taking risk away. You're just adding some unknown risk. I mean, they're trying to claim that because it could just randomly go up, that somehow that reduces your risk. Look, you could win a lottery, right? I could buy a lottery ticket. That's a non-correlated asset. And every once in a while, a lottery ticket might pay off. But that doesn't mean that buying a lottery ticket, taking some of my money and putting it in a lottery ticket is a wise thing to do or it's going to increase the value of my portfolio because I've added a highly risky non-correlated asset like a lottery ticket so the whole argument that non-correlation gives it Bitcoin value is nonsense the key is to be correlated to something either you know in a negative way so you could use it as a hedge Bitcoin is non-correlated but it's far more likely to go down than up. So what's the point of that? Why own something that you know, is more likely to go down than up and it's not correlated to anything? So, but it, what's funny about it is how everybody quickly changes the narrative to meet whatever the circumstances are. They never want to acknowledge that they're wrong. And so they have to keep reinventing Bitcoin based on the circumstances so they can keep validating it. They can keep pumping it. They can keep getting people to want to buy it. Now, you know, they're still pointing out that year to date, Bitcoin is still up more than gold, right? So they're, ah, you see, it's a better store of value than gold because year to date, it's up more. Look, just because something is appreciating doesn't mean it's a store of value, right? It's it's just something that's going up, right? So it could easily go down. But I wonder what these people are going to say later in the year when Bitcoin goes negative, right? When Bitcoin is down on the year and gold continues to make gains. You know, I'm sure they're not going to say, oh, I guess we were wrong because Bitcoin is underperforming gold. No, they're just going to be just as bullish. They're going to say, well, don't worry, it's going to 100,000, it's going to 250,000. Every time Bitcoin goes down and it always goes up and wait till the halving happens. And of course, after the halving and it hasn't gone up, they'll come up with some excuse. Uh, You know, this is Cognitive dissonance. You know, nobody that owns Bitcoin wants to admit the truth because if they admit the truth, then they got to sell, right? They got to give up their dreams of being rich. But of course, if everybody tries to sell, the market implodes because the market value is predicated on hardly anybody selling. Everybody has to hold on to that dream. Everybody has to keep on hoping because if people try to get out, you know, the bottom's going to drop out and the thing's going to crash. Meanwhile, pivoting over to the economy and the coverage of the economy. I was watching, again, on CNBC, and they had uh, this guy, Steve Grasso, who was uh, speaking for the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and they were talking about, you know, whether or not there might be a recession that would result from the coronavirus, and he was very nonchalant about admitting that we might have a recession, but he was very confident that the recession would be no big deal. He just said, look, you know, this is not about people not having the money to buy stuff. It's just that they don't go out, right? So they're not buying stuff. So we're ultimately gonna have a bunch of pent up demand. So sure, I mean, people may not buy things today. They may buy them tomorrow instead. So all the consumption, all the spending is gonna happen. It just might be delayed a little bit. And so we'll have this short recession while people are hunkered down and and not going out of their house and spending money. Which again, I thought was kind of like an ostrich, you know, burying his head in the sand and thinking he's got nothing to worry about uh, because you know he can't see his predators, so they obviously can't see him. Look, I mean, first of all, all recessions end, and all recessions end up as temporary uh, deferments of consumption or spending, and so you know that's what happens in most of these recessions. But the larger factor that Grosso was uh, overlooking—it's not about consumers. Lacking the desire to spend, it's about there not being enough stuff for them to buy. That is the threat of this coronavirus. I mean, more so than the actual health threat, which obviously it's a threat to people who contract it, and there you know there are people who have died from it. But you know, overall, right, the the main threat uh, to the economy is not uh, you know the virus itself. It is the disruption to the economy because people are going out of their way not to expose themselves to the virus, right? If there's quarantines and people aren't working. And of course, the, the bigger risk is going to be the monetary policy. I mean, I heard another guy on CNBC I mean, saying that, you know, the central banks have to flood the world with cash and open up the spigots. I mean, how is that going to help? How is just creating inflation, dumping money out of helicopters? You know, this might be the thing that finally exposes these monetary magicians for what they are. And the truth is finally going to be laid bare because everybody thinks that they can wave their magic wand if this really becomes a problem. This is nothing that can be solved by central banks. It can just be exacerbated by, by central banks. But getting back to Grasso's statement that we don't have to worry about this, this will not be a shallow recession. Whenever this recession starts, and it doesn't matter you know what starts it, maybe it's going to be The coronavirus. Maybe this is going to be the pin that pricks the bubble. I mean, if it wasn't the coronavirus, it would have been some other pin, right? When you're a bubble, uh, you're eventually going to find your pin. And, you know, when you hear all these people talking about how the markets are overreacting, right, to the coronavirus oh, this decline, it's an overreaction. Look, the markets were extremely overvalued before the coronavirus, you know, ever became a topic. And even though we've dropped, what, 8% or so. Uh, in the Dow and the S&P and 12% in the transports, the markets still are way overvalued despite the decline. So they should be going down regardless of the coronavirus. But the coronavirus is just one more thing to worry about. It's just one more straw on a camel's back that was already loaded up uh, with straws. But the the bigger issue, again, that Grasso is missing is that the goods aren't there to buy. But also, It is the leverage in the system. You see, our economy is so fragile. What the Federal Reserve has helped create is a over-leveraged economy where businesses need to constantly have cash flow to service their debt. You know, people, workers, need to get that paycheck. Remember, I mentioned on this podcast that, I forget the percentage, it was maybe a third of people run out of money between paychecks. So they're not even living paycheck to paycheck. Because they can't make it paycheck to paycheck. So who knows where they're getting the money uh, you know, when the paycheck runs out and they haven't been paid yet. But a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. And what if the paychecks stop? How are they going to pay their bills? How are they going to pay their debts? You know if the government is collecting lower tax revenues, I mean, if, if all these economic transactions grind to a halt, because we have so much debt, we implode. And of course, another thing is that most businesses, you know, when they're inventories, they don't have a lot of inventory. They don't keep a bunch of inventory. You know, it's all just in time, which is you you order the stuff that you need when you need it, and that keeps your inventory costs lower. But if you end up with a big backlog, uh, you don't have any products. And so you run out of products to sell. It doesn't even matter if people are showing up at your store, if there's nothing on the shelves for them to buy. And so this could be a much longer, much more protracted recession. And of course, once these dominoes start to go, right, it doesn't matter why the first one went. There's a lot of dominoes there. See, the important thing, it's not the size of the pin, right? It's the size of the bubble. This is an enormous bubble. It doesn't matter how small a pin is ultimately pricks it, whether the coronavirus ends up to be no big deal, if it's the pin, the bubble is pricked and the air is going to come out. And there is a lot more air in this bubble right, than in any of the prior bubbles that the Federal Reserve has inflated. And so this is going to be a much bigger bust. And as I've been saying, the main difference is there's nothing the Fed could do to reflate it. There is no bailout. There is no stimulus that will work. All of this inflation is going to go to the supermarket rather than the stock market. You know, and 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 the cost of living, which is already going up. I mean, even if you accept the government's measures of inflation, we're over 2%. Even though they claim we're not, their numbers show that we are. And the numbers are BS because we're actually higher than the numbers. Well, we're going to go much, much higher. And all of this, higher inflation, stagflation, uh, this is going to, you know, pave a a path for Bernie Sanders to become the next president. And, you know, this possibility is still not being factored into the market. Because if it was, we would be down a lot more than we already are. And most people still think that uh, if Sanders wins the nomination, it's actually good news because it means that Trump's going to get re-elected. And, uh, but I don't think that is the case. right? And obviously, if Trump is going to lose, the, the worst person for him to lose to would be Sanders. So just having Sanders you know, as the Democratic nominee and knowing Murphy's Law, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Well, what could go more wrong then electing Bernie Sanders. I mean, again, that's what the Democrats thought. They thought, oh, let's run against Trump. There's no way he could win, except he won. Right? And I'm sure they would have preferred any of the other Democrats that they thought were so easy to beat. Instead, they got what they wished for, uh, and then they ended up having President Trump. Well, the same thing could happen to Republicans wishing that uh, Trump would run against Sanders because if the stars align the right way, this recession starts right? Sanders is going to get the votes. I think it's all going to come down to the economy and the perception of the economy. And if the general perception is the economy is weak and getting weaker, then Sanders wins. If, if people believe that the economy is good and it's getting better or that it will get better, then they're not going to take a chance on, on socialism. But if they have nothing else to lose, if they, that's what they think, then they're going to they're go for, for Sanders. Which brings me to the South Carolina debates that we had last night, which again was another slugfest. I actually thought the last debate was more entertaining in the way they attacked each other. I mean, they still did it, but it wasn't quite as vicious, I think, as as the the last one, which really had almost no substance at all. I mean, all they did is attack one another. They didn't really talk about the issues more than the failures of of their opponents, which I think uh, delighted Donald Trump. And we had more of that this time. And I think this time the other Democrats were a little smarter to realize that Sanders is their is their opponent. Uh, so they devoted more of their fire towards Sanders and not quite as much against uh, Bloomberg. But still, you know, a lot of the fire was aimed in Bloomberg's direction. But of course, the problem for the Democrats who want to criticize uh, Sanders is they don't want to alienate Sanders supporters, right? And they also don't want to alienate AOC, who might try to rile up people. uh, Although, you know, these are senators, there's no people in Congress that are up there. Uh, But people don't want to get on their bad side. So they don't want to actually say that what Sanders wants to do is economically bad, right? And in fact, a lot of people went out of their way to say, look, I agree with Bernie. I think he's right about a lot of stuff. I share his concerns, right? Everybody wants to, you know, get on board. But what they're criticizing him for is being too polarizing, right? I think it was Pete Buttigieg that said, can you really imagine a, a moderate Republican voting for Sanders, right? So basically his message is the bad guys won't want to vote for him. Well, that just makes him more popular to the so-called good guys, because even a moderate Republican is a bad guy. You know, why isn't he a Democrat? If he really cared, he'd be a Democrat like we are. So he's just not as bad as the conservatives. Okay, he's less bad. But the fact that Sanders is not appealing to people who are less bad than others, right, that doesn't make him bad. What Sanders opponents are saying is we can't aspire for this. This is We'll never get what we really want. All this good stuff that Sanders wants to do, there's no point in reaching for it because we'll never get it, right? Why should we try? Uh, because we'll never succeed because the bad guys won't go for it. We won't be able to get elected on this. And even if we get elected, we won't get it through Congress because, you know, there's still some uh, conservative Democrats out there that aren't enlightened enough uh, to want to go with this, uh, you know, this new program, this new revolution. And again, all of this kind of solidifies Sanders' appeal as the aspirational revolutionary candidate. All these other guys are just trying to uh, be, well, Let's I'm the consolation prize. You know, vote for me instead of who you really want because you're never gonna get what you really want. So you have to settle for me. And I just don't think offering yourself as you know, the candidate to settle for because you can't get the candidate that you really want. I just don't see that that's going to be a compelling strategy, especially when the moderates or so-called moderates. I mean, it's only moderate by by comparison, but especially when there's so many of those guys left in the field that are uh, divvying up the boats. You know, the one guy Uh, Steyer, the other billionaire in the race, you know, he made a play for the African-American vote by saying, I'm the only person up here on this stage that is in favor of reparations for slavery, which, of course, is a completely idiotic position. I've gone over it in the past on the podcast, how asinine that is, reparations for slavery. I mean, first of all, you know, none of the slaves are here uh, to receive the reparations. I mean, maybe some of their great-great-great-grandchildren are here, but they're not suffering. They're benefiting from the sacrifice of their ancestors. But for their ancestors being brought here as slaves, they wouldn't have been born in America if they were born at all, and they would be in much worse economic situation if they were born, you know, somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, right? So, you know, slavery was bad for the slaves, but it was a windfall for the descendants of slaves, right? I mean, that's reality. But of course— you know, I mean, how many blacks that are living in America today actually descended from slaves? I mean, how do you know? And how many blacks are not? You know, they have white uh, ancestors. You know, so maybe there are some black people today whose ancestors actually owned slaves, right? Because they have some white ancestors in in their in their genealogy. I mean, and there you know, and there were plenty of white people who never owned slaves. I mean, how many white people descended from whites that never owned slaves? In fact. There were some whites who were slaves. They were in the minority, but there were some. And in fact, there were blacks who owned slaves. So it's possible that there is in America today a black descendant of a slave-owning black. Why should he get reparations from a descendant of a white slave? And of course me, you know, none of my parents were even in America until uh, about 50 years after slavery ended. So none of my ancestors owned slaves, not that I believe that people should be punished for the sins of their fathers, let alone their great-great-great-grandfathers, but clearly it's not my fault, right? I, my, my ancestors weren't here. In fact, my ancestors were slaves in Egypt, if you wanna go back far enough, right? So the whole, the whole premise is nonsense. You don't know who's gonna get it. You don't know who's gonna pay it. It's just a way to pander uh, for the African-American vote. But meanwhile, um, Steyer, says I'm the only one for reparations and nobody says a word, right? Nobody wants to criticize him for being, uh, for reparations. They're probably pissed that he brought it up because they don't even want to talk about it. They're hoping nobody asks a question about it because they don't want to actually have to come out in favor of it, but they don't want to say they're against it because they need the the black vote. And so that's a big carrot that's waved in front. So this guy, Steyer, went for the Hail Mary to say that I'm in favor of reparations, right? To maybe get some of that, That vote, but I you know, they should put these guys on the spot. I mean, the moderators don't want to do that. They don't want to put them in the position. You know, sometimes when they're asked about it, they'll say, Well, I'm in favor of having a commission to study it, which is a real cop out. I mean, what do you need a commission for? What do you have to study? Are you for it or against it? Don't talk about let's have a commission. What's the commission gonna find out? There's nothing they're gonna do. That's what whenever a politician doesn't want to answer a question because of the political ramifications, They'll just say, well, we'll form a committee and study it, right? Because, oh, what's wrong with that, right? You want to get more information. You don't need more information to realize it is a completely asinine, unworkable idea, right? But this guy this guy brought it up. You know, one of the things that Bloomberg, though, again, on the spot about the NDAs for female employees and between the last debate where he was challenged by Elizabeth Warren on air to just blankedly release every woman who had ever signed an NDA— from her NDA, even though a lot of these women had already been paid off, right, and they got a bunch of money, and now he's supposed to just release them on the spot, right? <laughs> he he didn't want to do that. I mean, who the hell would do that, right? He'd be he would not be responsible enough to be president if he was irresponsible enough to do that. But apparently, after he checked with uh, you know his company, there were three women that he claims had made allegations about him or his jokes, and he was prepared to release these three women. But he also mentioned that going forward, right, that his company, Bloomberg, would no longer have NDAs, right, that they would never do this again, that he realizes that these are bad things, you know, and it's not right to, you know, muzzle somebody with an NDA. And so, you know, we're not going to have them. And first of all, you know, the NDAs work both ways. And in many cases, the employees benefit from, you know, the employer not being able to trash their reputation or say something that may make it harder for them to get another job, you know, if, you know, let's say that you knew that somebody had sued their prior employer for discrimination, and it was, you know, it was public knowledge and you knew about it, you wouldn't wanna hire that person. I mean, mean, in theory, it could be illegal, right? You're not supposed to discriminate based on that, but how is anybody gonna know? I mean, if you know that information, because there is no NDA, and I could just find out, oh, this last person you know, After she uh, left uh, Bloomberg, uh, she filed a discrimination lawsuit and collected uh, a $50,000 check. I'll pass on that risk. That person is way too litigious. Uh, I don't want to take a chance of hiring that person. So by keeping this thing quiet, that actually benefits the person who got the money because now they have a better chance of getting another job because other employers don't know that you know she shook down her last employer or he or whatever. It's not just women. That sue for discrimination or stuff like that. I mean, if it's sexist, yeah, but there are a lot of other things. But they're trying to make this specifically about women. But also, one of the reasons that companies settle when the allegations are false, and of course, I am not saying that every allegation of sexual harassment is false, right? Or every allegation of discrimination. First of all, I believe that people have a right to discriminate. So I, I e- even if they did it, I don't think it's wrong. I think that people have a right to discriminate. I don't think that people have a right to sexually harass other people. So there, uh, sexual harassment is, you know, a real thing. And so I think if somebody is sexually harassed, that, that is something that is a problem, right? Discrimination, I think people have a right. I mean, people have a right to discriminate if that's the case. But even forgetting about that, right? I do believe that. There are some people that were discriminated against or were sexually harassed. But I think the majority of claims that are filed by employees that are alleging sexual harassment or discrimination, I think they're frivolous. I think either the employee is mistaken, right? And they think they were discriminated against, but they weren't, right? Or maybe they are regarding something as sexual harassment that really didn't constitute sexual harassment. Or in many cases, they're just lying, they want the money they're shaking down their employer it's legal extortion this happens all the time in america right everybody takes advantage of this right i mean especially with the Americans with disabilities act you got people in wheelchairs rolling into restaurants all over the country with no intention of eating there they're just writing down a list of violations and they hand it to a lawyer who then shakes down the restaurant you know for as much money as he can Uh, And and then the guy goes to another restaurant. I mean, it's a whole cottage industry of shaking down companies uh, because of these laws. So employees, especially if you've been fired, right? A lot of people that are fired, they're disgruntled, they're upset, you know, they need extra income, they want to get back at their employer, so they file a lawsuit. And then what happens is the employer settles because they want to avoid the legal cost, but they don't want that information out there. They don't want to send messages to other employees, hey, just file a lawsuit, you'll get a check right? They want to keep it quiet. They also don't want the bad publicity. So one of the reasons that companies are willing to settle the lawsuits is because they can also get a non-disclosure agreement so they know that the person they're paying off doesn't go blab in their mouth after they get the check. They don't go talk to the media. They don't spread rumors. They don't help you know create a bad reputation for the business. They don't uh, result in copycat lawsuits or other people want a piece of the action so if Bloomberg is now saying hey we're no longer going to offer these NDAs well wait a minute then now they're going to have to think about settling they can't settle now I mean how are you going to settle if you pay the person off but then they can spout their mouth off so I think if this really happens then they're going to have to settle fewer of these cases they're going to have to litigate these things and win right there you know because that's you know then then the allegation doesn't have as much credibility because if you sue your employer for discrimination or sexual harassment and you lose, well, the fact that you lost, you know, says a lot about the validity of your claim. But when you get paid off, a lot of people assume that that means that your claim had validity. And so if you can take the money and then, you know, shout your mouth off, a lot of people are going to believe that the company did something wrong and that's why they paid you off. No, a lot of times companies make a business decision to pay the person off because it's cheaper than litigating and proving that they're wrong and vindicating them. This happens all the time. Businesses make a economic business judgment. They save money by settling. Lawyers know this is going to happen. That's why they file all these lawsuits. That's why most of these lawsuits are probably bogus. But again, Mike Bloomberg has to be politically correct. He can't talk about bogus lawsuits. He can't talk about women lie because all women must be believed. Anyone who alleges sexual harassment or discrimination, well, they're obviously telling the truth. And the fact that they stand to gain financially from lying, well, that's not going to influence them, right? I thought an interesting new uh, little piece of uh, goodies that um, Bernie Sanders is dangling out there in front of the teachers. And obviously all the teachers are going to vote for Bernie Sanders. First of all, he's got all the students, right? And anybody with student loans because he's going to forgive all of the student loans. So that is a pretty big carrot uh, to wave in front of the students. You have students with $35,000, $50,000, $100,000 worth of debt. And Bernie Sanders says, hey, I'm just going to forgive it. I mean, maybe he's going to forgive it with some kind of executive order. So um, yeah, he's got the students, but now he's going to get the teachers on board because he said he's going to make sure That every teacher in the country makes at least $60,000 a year. Now, I I don't know exactly what the average teacher makes in the United States. Maybe it's $40,000 a year. And he's saying that I want to give all these teachers a 50% raise. Now, first of all, how's he going to do that? I mean, the teachers don't work for the federal government. They work for, you know, the cities. Where the city's going to get the money to give all the teachers a 50% raise. Apparently, there's going to be some government program where the federal government is going to send aid to all these school districts so they can just give big raises to all the teachers, right? And so the teachers are like, yeah, this is great. I want to earn $60,000, right? Every teacher is going to get $60,000. And then he followed that up. He said the reason that he wants to give every teacher $60,000 a year is because he wants great teachers. And the way to get great teachers is to pay them more money, except the way he wants to do it, forgetting about the fact that there's no money to actually do it. But assuming that it was there, if all the teachers were going to get $60,000 a year, how does that result in great teachers? Because you're paying all the teachers, whether they're great or not. The lousy teachers are going to make the same amount of money as the good teachers. You know, that's why the unions are opposed to all this merit pay based compensation. I agree. Good teachers should be paid more, but bad teachers need to be paid less. And that's what would happen in a free market, right? In a free market, good teachers would get more, right? Because school districts would bid for them, right? And maybe public schools wouldn't be competition with private schools. In fact, private schools probably hire out a lot of the good teachers because they are able to pay them more. They don't have to pay the bad teachers as much as the good teachers. You know, in the school system with the unionized teachers, the one thing that counts is seniority. So if a lousy teacher has been a teacher for a long time, that guy's going to make a lot more money or gal. Than a great teacher who's just started so the incentives are all screwed up but the idea that we'll just get better teachers by paying the teachers that we already have more money some of them are lousy how is that going to get better teachers now i guess what he's saying is if the teachers were making more money well then maybe more people would choose uh, teaching over other professions but teachers are already paid a lot of money relative to the skills required for the work they do remember you don't really need a big college major I mean you can major in education that's no big deal Uh, teachers only work what nine months out of the year they have more vacations probably than any other occupation that's very valuable to have you know two three months off every year to travel or just hang out or stay at home and a lot of people value that leisure but a lot of teachers have summer jobs They line up other employment opportunities so they actually make more than what they earn as a teacher because they have a second income uh for their their vacations and also if you look at when you know schools are out schools end at 2 30 3 o'clock you know they generally start seven eight in the morning i mean it's not a long day it's not a stressful job in fact mentally and emotionally i think it's a very rewarding job i think working with kids is great i think it's it's stimulating and i think that you you uh, you, you feel that you're doing something good right and and you are i mean you're educating people and at least you're supposed to so there's some emotional benefit of being a teacher right it's not hard meaningless uh you know uh work uh, manual labor or just repetitious, boring, boring stuff. So to the extent that there is some personal satisfaction that comes with teaching, that actually has a, a value that you could you could quantify. So we're not underpaying teachers. And if we just pay more, we're not gonna suddenly get a much higher caliber, especially given the unionized uh, rules that we have today. All we're gonna do is end up paying the teachers we have more money. And a lot of those teachers are bad teachers and they're just gonna get paid more uh, for doing a bad job.